0: thanks guys man you guys are becoming a great band it's so much fun to worship with you guys John's done a great job with them and they've done a great it's just nice to see that it's just encouraging alright where am I If if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, should be, and you can turn it to page 320. If you have your own Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. One of the things that um, parents often face, especially the question from little boys, is when am I not a little kid anymore? My, my son's five. He's already asked me this a number of times. My other kids keep asking me because they hope the answer is going to change. But I, I say, you're not a little kid and I don't have to constantly supervise you and you will have some autonomy when... What's your answer? Okay. This can't really be participatory, sorry. But here's my answer. My answer is when you can actually think about and predict what your actions are actually going to do. Realize it before they happen and stop them when they're idiotic, okay? That's when you're, that's when you're a big boy. So when you realize that this thing you really want to do is actually going to burn our house down or flood it, (laughs) right, that's when you know, that's when you know that you're, you're a big boy or you're a big girl. Now, one of the things that's part of getting kids there is constantly telling them that they're failures, Now, here's what I mean by that. Sorry, if you're new, uh, I just can't help but attacking silly parenting models, and so I sometimes do it in ways that are unhelpful. Anyway, um, (laughs) so, because when I say, listen, um, this is when you're a big boy, here's what my answer really is. My answer is, when you can predict your own failure and prevent it, that's when you're a big boy, right? And— all the time, I end up having these you're-gonna-fail conversations with my kids So, for, for example, Daddy, can I play on your tablet? What's the response to that? Well, here's my response Before, it has been this Yes, but here's the problem You're gonna take my tablet out to your little treehouse thing And you're gonna leave it out there And it's gonna rain And it's gonna destroy my tablet And then I'm gonna come to you for $500 Is that what you want? No, Daddy but I won't leave it out there. I won't forget. And I won't even take it out to the treehouse. I'll just play it in here. Awesome. Go ahead. So a couple hours later, when I go retrieve it from the (laughs) treehouse, and I come in, and two hours later, it rains, and then I go to Rachel and say, Hey, Rachel, where's my tablet? And she goes, (gasps) The point of that is not to destroy her self-esteem and make her feel like a failure. I am trying to destroy my kid's self-esteem because I think self-esteem is just a modern code word for the idolatry of pride, but that's not the point. If my kid has high self-esteem, I'm just, I just know he'll be in, she'll be she and he will be in my basement until they're 35. That's where high self-esteem kids end up. Um, <laughs> but there, but the, the point is not, the point is not that I want to make her feel bad. The point is I want to do three things for her. I want her to A, Have a chance of succeeding Because she is a space cadet She's not old enough to think about the implications of her actions And if I tell her beforehand And if she listens to me She could actually succeed She could not take the tablet outside Not put it in her treehouse And it not be destroyed That could happen And it's much more likely if I predict for her what's about to happen The second thing is when she does fail She may have learned two things that she would not not have learned otherwise The first is she may learn something about herself That she is not a big girl yet Because she doesn't think About the consequences of her actions She's still too self-involved She could learn something about her condition Which is incredibly central to her Figuring out who she is And becoming who she's meant to be And third, I want her to learn something about me That I am much more experienced than her Much smarter than her Her behavior is not opaque to me I see right through her I know all about her And I can help her If she'll just listen over the years, we've become really sensitive to judgmental prediction. That is, somebody predicting our failure. And part of that's because some of us had angry fathers or something. I don't know. Apparently, there was a whole generation of dads that belittled their children into, like, non-masculinity. I didn't experience this, so I've just heard mostly stories about it. I did have coaches that were like that, and it is pretty awful. There were a couple I would have loved to slam their head in the car door over and over again. I've grown out of that feeling, but that— That still is how I felt when I was a kid on their baseball team. Um, Because they were so mean and so belittling, and it was not empowering at all. But it also has made us a little bit oversensitive to the importance of failure prediction. In fact, um, in a number of of psych studies that are going on right now, that one of the most important things for children to succeed is optimistic falsification. That is— that they're optimistic. They believe that they can accomplish something, but one of the first things they think about when they come up with a plan is what's wrong with this idea so that they can see it, they can fix it, and they can actually succeed rather than just assume their idea is fabulous from the beginning and learn everything the hard way, which is incredibly wasteful, very destructive, and very— Did I say painful the first time? Do I need to come up with a new a third adjective? Painful. Let's go with painful. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. One of the things we need to recognize here is that predicting failure primes us for either success or redemption. When it's done for the right reason. When it's done for the right reason. When it's not done to destroy somebody. But when it really is done for the right reason, it primes us to be successful or to be redeemed. And therefore, it's very important. And the reason this is important is for two reasons this morning. One is because this is one of the reasons why so many people dismiss and don't like the book of Deuteronomy, which is what we're in this morning. But much more important than that is the fact that this is one of the reasons why people don't like the God of Deuteronomy. Because they don't like—they don't like the meanness. It sounds like their dad or dads they've heard about. And they have been taught psychologically to react negatively without actually thinking it through. And if we're going to embrace the God of Deuteronomy Which is the God of the gospel The God of Jesus Christ The God who loves you And gave himself for you We have to understand this dynamic Of why he tells us we stink And predicts our failures So many times in scripture Because people misjudge Deuteronomy And they misjudge God Because they they hear the failure prediction And they presume that it's judgmental When really it's pastoral Okay, let me take a couple minutes on the wider context of Deuteronomy to kinda of get us loaded. Deuteronomy is just an English translation of the Greek Deuteronomos, Deuteros to Namos Law. Deuteronomy is the second law, because the first children of Israel who came out of Egypt didn't want to go in the promised land. They were like, it's too hard, we don't like it, and God's like, fine, you can just stay in the desert for 40 years till you all die. That works fine for me. And then a new generation of kids grew up, and they became the Israelites who were going to go into the promised land and take the land that God had promised to Abraham, right? And so he gets them ready, and there's three things he has to do, because they're a new generation. He has to retell them the old story, because they're not all that familiar with it, apparently. And so he tells them the story of Abraham and how he chose them and how he brought them out of Egypt and what he did and then how their parents failed and how they didn't believe and then what, what the future was and what he'd promised and what he was taking them into. He tells the whole story. And listen, the story is as important as the laws. You've got to know the story to know your place in it. And so he tells them the whole story and then he tells them the law. He says, this is what a relationship with me looks like. If you as a people are going to be related to me as your God, this is the dynamic and these are the laws that you need to follow. And then he reinstitutes the government. He goes through the ceremony again of, I belong to you and you belong to me. Okay, so now let's go. Now there's two reminders that he gives along the way because what, what are you going to be prone to if as a group of people, you're God's chosen and then you go on this military campaign where you win every battle all the time you whip all these people's behinds, and then you have the one, a, a beautiful, spacious land that's fully blessed all to yourself. What is, the, what is the human character thing that will happen? Right? It's pride, right? It's pride. And so he, he takes a minute, God does, to say, listen, you need to remember why this is happening and what you are and aren't. And in chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, he says, that the first is, you are not great. You are not great. It says it's the Lord, and this is the Lord speaking about himself. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples. For you are the fewest of all people. It was because the Lord loved you And kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Right? It's not because you're awesome. It's because God in himself decided to set his affection on you, choose your forefathers, and fulfill his promises. You're not great. God is great. It's very important for him to teach. And then he said, listen, the minute you realize you're not great, the next reason pride will cause you to believe your success is because you're morally better. He said that's not true either And in chapter 9 he deals with this He says in 9, 4-6 After the Lord your God Has driven them out before you Do not say to yourself The Lord has brought me here To take possession of this land Because of my righteousness Don't say that No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Understand then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess because you are a stiff-necked people, right? He's saying, listen, you're going into the land because I've waited 500 years— for these people to listen to me And to repent And to come out of this Enormously destructive Cultural degrading lifestyle That they It's, it's I mean The Canaanites practiced Constant child sacrifices and, and God had waited 450 years He told Abraham He said You're not going to get this land For a half a millennia Because I'm waiting on this people To turn around He finally sends Israelites To destroy him. He says It's not because you're good It's because they're wicked Because The second thing is You're not even good You're actually enormously stubborn And stiff-necked You will not listen And you're full of pride That's what's true about you So when you win, when you're successful, when you're at the height of your game, when you come into this land and you beat everybody back and you are large and in charge, do not ever let self-righteousness creep in. Do not let yourself think that you're here because you're great or you're here because you're good. Now listen, there's not a whole lot of stuff, interpretation that needs to happen to pull that right into the present. There's precisely nothing that needs to be done to pull that right into the present. But it's the end of the book that throws people, and it's the end of the book that I want to talk about this morning. Because from chapters 27 to the end, something a little bit odd happens. In chapter 27, there is a series of curses where he basically says, listen, if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and if you don't follow the the commands I've given you today in the relationship that we have, basically everything terrible you can possibly think of is going to happen to you. Things are going to go really, 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 badly. Okay? And then, after that, there's another section, right after he says, but if you do love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, and if you do obey what the commands I've given you today, and if we you live in this covenant that we've made, then actually, I'm going to see to it that there's blessing. It's— I'm going I'm happy to prosper you. I want to be generous. It's, it's not like I'm st- God's saying I'm not stingy. I'm very generous. I want to be generous, and I will be. Right. And and then, in fact, it's so—it's interesting because he says, he says, now listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to split up two groups from two different tribes and put one— because so they're crossing the Jordan into the promised land, right? So put one group over here on Mount Ebal and one on Mount Gerizim and have the Israelites walk between them and have these guys shout the curses and have these guys shout the blessings while the Israelites walk through. Somebody's trying to make a point, right? Apparently this is important. But then it gets even more interesting because if, when you move down into, into chapter 31, is where there's an s- extended section where he predicts their failures. He says, listen, you're not going to do it. You're not going to pay attention. You're not going to do this. You're not going to remember. You're not going to be careful to obey everything written in the law. You're going to do whatever you want and I'm going to punish you. All these curses are going to happen to you and it's going to be awful. And you're like, well, that's, that's really touching. Thank you so much for that. And then he says, this is, I think this is, a, this may be the funniest thing in Deuteronomy. I, because it's, I didn't even know this was there until I was studying this week In chapter 31 he says, listen You're going to write down a song And it's going to be basically the you fail song And everybody has to learn it So you're going to write it down And then you have to teach it to everybody And all the kids have to learn it It's going to be part of your curriculum So uh, you, don't, you don't have to memorize the Bible the, bi- the only command to read the law is every seven years When all debts are forgiven When everybody comes together To receive that blessing The law is to be read So everybody can hear it But this song Everybody has to know And it's the you fail song It's the you're not gonna do it It's not gonna go well You're not gonna listen You're not gonna remember You're not gonna obey And God is gonna curse you And he's gonna He's gonna Oh, it's gonna be bad And it's And you're like Well, apparently this is a small song Because I don't see any Any song But then you get to chapter 32 And all of a sudden It's in poetic Right? And you're like Oh, it's kind of a long You Suck song, isn't it? <laughs> or You Stink, sorry. Like it's, okay, so in the Bible I have up here, it's one, two, three, four and a half pages. Right? That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And key to interpreting this whole section is chapter 30, which I'm going to read right now. So let's go back to that. When all these blessings— And curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart. Whatever the Lord your God, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have... Been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again again obey the Lord and follow all his commandments I am giving you today. And then the Lord your God will make you more prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb and in the young of your livestock and in the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commandments, commands and decrees that are written in the book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul— Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult. It's not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed." You will not live long in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live... And that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we look at that, it has built into it. You can you can see it in there, the answer to the question, why does he do that? Why does he predict their failure? Why does he constantly talk about how bad humans are? Why does, why does this passage, why does the whole Bible do that? Why is failure and predicting failure such an important part of the Bible story? Why does God predict failure that doesn't have to happen? Why, why the negativity? Why, why the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And the answer to that really is that it's not self-fulfilling prophecy. It's actually the opposite, a lot of people really don't even know the opposite category to self fulfilling prophecy. It's self defeating prophecy. It's prophecy given with the intention that it should never happen, rather than to give a prophecy that wouldn't have happened unless it was given. The reason why God predicts our failure is to prime us for success or redemption if we won't listen, to teach us the same three, three things I'm constantly trying to teach Rachel. If you listen, you could succeed. If you don't, you could learn something about yourself and about me that would really help you. So, there's two points I want to talk about, but I only got through one last service, so I'll only do one this service. This is going to be a two-parter, apparently. And the first, of course, is predicting failure primes us for success. That is, it is the biblical functionality of self-defeating prophecy. Every negative prophetic voice in the entire Bible functions first and foremost as a self-defeating prophecy. Now, they don't all succeed as self-defeating prophecies. Self-defeating prophecies rarely do succeed. But their intention is that because the prophecy is given, it never comes true. Right? In the book of Ezekiel, for example, God says, if I tell a city that they're going to live long in prosperity because they obey me, and if their hearts turn away from me, and they decide they're not going to obey and follow me or believe in me any longer, I will bring—I will not bless them the way I said, and I will bring punishment on the city. Then right after I said, if, if a city is terrible, and they hate me, and they do everything they can against me, and I declare that they're going to be destroyed, and they turn, and they change, and they say no, and they have faith, and they turn, turn back to me, I will not do what I said— The whole book of Jonah is wrapped around that idea because God says, go and tell Nineveh, I'm going to kill everyone. And Jonah doesn't want to, but he hates the Ninevites. So what's the deal? It's at the end of the book where he says, I "I knew all along that you are a good God, gracious and compassionate. And I knew that if I told them, and if they listened, and if they repented and turned around, you wouldn't do what you said you would. Is it because God doesn't do what he says he's going to do? Is he a bad? No. It's because the whole intention in the first place was that the, that the pronouncement of destruction was first and foremost a warning that could still be avoided. Even though he pronounces it as something that is going to happen. But it's also important to recognize that he turns around and he says, not, nah, listen, you're going to fail and there's nothing you can do about it. You're just going to fail. How do you tell the difference between somebody who is just creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, who's really trying to destroy you, break your spirit, and make you fail, and somebody who gives a self-defeating prophecy who really wants you to succeed? And here's why. At some point they say, but you could do it. Have you ever had that? Somebody rides you, tells you how bad a failure you're going to be. You're never going to make it. You're never going to know. And then they say, but don't quit. Right? Right? How many military movies have you seen like that? Or whatever, sports movies. And they're like, the coach is rioting up. You're never going to make it. You stink. You're a terrible recruit. And then right when that guy's about to give up, he's like, Come on, do one more. Don't give up. Not right now. Come, quit tomorrow. And, they, and then the person makes it. And then, then they cue the music. Dun, 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 right? Sorry, that was wedding music, wasn't it? That's not really what they normally put in in, in, in war movies right? The difference between the self-fulfilling prophesying person who really wants to destroy you and the person who gives the self-defeating prophecy who wants you to succeed, at some point he says, but you could do it. If you listened, if you fought, if you fought against this and you turned from this and you got on a different trajectory, you could do it. And that's what chapter 30 verses 11 and 13 are all about. Right? Where he says, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. You're gonna, you're gonna fail. I'm gonna talk all about how you fail. But look, you could do it It's right there It's not so far away It's not up in heaven That you don't even know it And it's not across the sea That you couldn't possibly get to it It's not beyond your reach It's right there I've taken it And I've brought it right to you And I've given you something You really can do It is possible And it's impossible Now that may sound like a contradiction But that's because You may be listening to the logical flow Rather than the coaching flow Coaches say stuff that are contradictory all the time and there's a lot of things in life that you don't really understand them and you can't live into them unless there's some kind of paradoxically tensioned contradiction. For example, this will warm your heart your at heart, how romantic I am about marriage. Um, Lexi and I have a number of sayings and quote rules in our marriage. One of them is, if you cut your hair, I'm going to grow mine out. That's a long story. But, a, but another one is, which is really great because now 14 years, for all the years I've been in ministry, she could have just called my bluff and she hasn't. Um, so, but there's, there's one axiom that we have in our marriage That um, is this We are totally secure in our commitment to each other Because of Christ And because of our love for each other Because we're married And two, under the right circumstances Neither of us are more than a month away from an affair Those are, our, that's the axiom we're, you're absolutely secure in this marriage, and you can enjoy it, and you can you can feel that. And two, neither neither of us are more than a month away from an affair. Now, that's on one level, that sounds like a contradiction. But you see, you could you could go either way with that. Either you could say, you could you could hear that and know that, and you could say, "Oh, wait, it's not really secure." And oh, what, what the security makes you arrogant about being an idiot about your marriage, and then the fact that they could have an affair makes you really questioning about their behavior, and so be, you become this sort of like doofus paranoid, right? That is a logical way to respond, right? You take the assurance part, and you use that to be prideful and dumb and fat and ugly, right? Morally speaking. And then you take the insecurity, fragility part, and you say, oh no, I better watch her. I better make sure she doesn't go anywhere, right? And you you become this doofus paranoid, right? Now, but there is another way to respond, right? You can take courage and comfort from the stability, and the fragility can cause vigilance, And so you can be a person who has courageous vigilance in relationship to that that relationship. That's not very eloquent, is it? But you see what I'm saying? And see, it's supposed to be the latter, right? It's supposed to be the latter. That you're supposed to take courage from the possibility of success, but that the fragility of it creates the necessary attitude about vigilance. Because there are a number of things we can never achieve without vigilance. And I believe a good marriage is one of them. Because if you're not vigilant against your lying nature, you'll destroy your intimacy. If you're not vigilant against the lust that's in your heart, it will creep up on you. There's all kinds of things that we're in denial about that will creep up on us. Think about salvation. I mean, Baptists and Methodists are always fighting about whether you can lose your salvation or not, right? You can lose your salvation. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. Right? Well, if you're new and you don't come to church, there are people who argue about that, okay? Now, why does that argument persist? Well, the argument persists because they both have verses. There's some people, there are some places in the Bible that seem to allude to the fact that real faith is still fragile, and there are other places that seem to say, look, if you're in, you're in. God's totally going to take care of you. It's on him anyway. He's going to keep you, and that's all there is to it. Now, you can use that to become prideful and schizophrenic. Paranoid. You can do that. You can be like, "Well, maybe I'm not. Ca- maybe God's not going to help me. And maybe he's not- Maybe maybe I'm going to lose my salvation. I don't know what's going to happen." And you can become paranoid. And then you can be like, "Oh, but he says he's going to keep me, so I don't have to think, worry about serving or honoring him, or anything or conforming my mind or thought." And you become this paranoid doofus. But there's another response that you could say, "Okay, my continuing in my stupidity. God says he has taken responsibility in that." that he is doing a keeping work for me that I can actually rest in. So I can have courage that I can make it. Right? And at the same time, I can look at passages where Paul says, be careful and see whether you're not actually in the faith. And Jesus can say things like, you know, many people are going to say, Lord, Lord, in that day that I'm going to say, I never knew you depart from me to eternal fire. Or in Hebrews, you can say, look, there are some trees that think they're growing and they're going to be torn down and burned up because they've tasted the heavenly— Right? The the point of that is not to say, oh, that's not true. The point of that to say is, wait a second. Part of your hope in making it to the end is vigilance. And so when you recognize the inherent fragility of our nature, then it begins to make sense that you need something that can cause you to take courage because your courage is fragile, and you need something that's going to build vigilance because your vigilance is fragile. If you understand the fragility of the human condition, we need contradictions and paradoxes in who we are and what we are in our coaching. Not in our theology, but in how we apply our theology to coach ourselves psychologically so that we can both take courage and be vigilant. Because you can't make it. You can't make it without vigilance. And vigilance in all things is one of the things in our culture we are not very concerned about. Except for the NSA, apparently. True faith, biblical faith, um, is against our condition. There is a condition in human beings that is not all primed and set up and ready to roll with Jesus. We're not that way. The Bible—and the the New Testament, uh, the NIV translation is the sinful nature. It's not really our nature. It's the condition of our nature. Our nature is actually a good nature created by God, to be— to be like him and to be made in his image. But that nature has been corrupted and is now in a corrupt condition. And in our human condition, as sinful, we need an enormous amount of vigilance. And, what, and part of vigilance is to get over the psychological humps by making those choices starkly. And that's why real faith always requires these three things. A deliberate choice, a disciplined remembrance, and a careful obedience. All of those you can find in Deuteronomy if you just read it in a kind of cursory way. Like, when you think about why do people—why do people who are like, you know, Baptist evangelical people— why are they always talking about decision? You've got to make a call. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to you got to be saved. You've got to experience regeneration. You've got to trust Jesus. you got to—when did—when did, when did that—some people say, when did that happen? Some people won't even admit you're a Christian unless you can give them a date, right? Now, is that just because they're just nutty? It, well, you know, why—you know, why is Billy—the Billy Graham magazine called Decision— and here's why. Because the faith is something you gotta darn well know your inner out of. Right? That's what Kierkegaard was all about. And he's a Lutheran, right? I mean, Kierkegaard was like—he lived in a country where—it was, it was Denmark, so everybody's a Christian, right? I had lunch with somebody not that long ago that thought that Nazism was a Christian denomination. Be- be- well, because—he was Indian, right? Europe is Christian. Germany's Christian. It produced Nazism. It's a religion. It must be a Christian denomination. That's perfectly reasonable from where he came from, right? I've met lots of Indians in India that believe Marxism is a Christian denomination, essentially. It's—you believe a lot of nutty things about India, okay? So do I. It's just just the way it is. Um, But listen, you gotta know—you gotta know if you're in or out. Right? Kierkegaard was like, all of you, he, he was, his whole point to Denmark— in fact, there's this point where, where Kierkegaard is writing, and somebody says, why are you doing this? Like, why are you constantly agitating everybody so that everyone hates you? Because everybody hated Kierkegaard. And he said, it is my job to disabuse the people of Denmark from the idea that they are Christians. That's the whole purpose of my life—to convince the people of my country they are not Christians. They're Lutherans, and if Luther showed up, they, he would not recognize them. Right? That was in the 1800s. I'm not talking about Lutherans now and—or people in Denmark now. Who knows? The whole point was he felt like he was doing a service because people weren't thinking straight whether they were in or out. They weren't making a deliberate choice. They were just kind of grew up in it. And when you do that, what happens? Well, sometimes you'd really know, but sometimes you're kind of like, I don't really know. Well, you can't be vigilant if you don't know where the borders are. What are you protecting? What's your identity? If you're trying to be vigilant about your Christian identity, you've got to know what it is. What are you? What do you you stand for? What does it mean? What what are you obeying? What are you not obeying? What what are you standing against? In what ways does your mind have to be reformed to the image of Christ? In what ways do you have to— You see, if there's not a deliberate choice, if you're not saying, I am this and not this, and what what does the Bible call that? I mean, we've only got— Friends, we've only got two sacraments or two ordinances in in our form of Protestantism, and one of them is— Baptism. That's what baptism is. It's the, I'm in. I'm taking Jesus' name. I belong to him. I'm his disciple, and I'm learning to obey everything he's commanded me. And I will go where he sends me to do what he's called me to do. I'm in. That's what baptism is. It's a deliberate choice. But you also have to have disciplined remembrance. You've got to have vigilance all the way along. You can't quit. You've got to constantly be remembering. If you remember back in January when I, I preached four sermons about what are we doing when we come here, you can pull out that sticker that's it's on my laptop. One of them is disciplined remembrance. Well, the reason we do this is because we forget who we are all week long. And we need to come here and remember who's God, who isn't, what we are, what we're not, what our identity is, so that we can constantly remember the thing we're constantly forgetting. Well, Nick, why do you think I'm constantly forgetting it? Because you're a human like me. Let me ask you a question. Who is an anti-Semite? Anybody? Anybody want to admit that? Are you an anti-Semite? Okay, so let me ask you this. Do you think that God was talking to just Jews when he said, you're a stiff-necked people? Do you think Jews, as a race, are inherently more stubborn than you are? Oh, that's a tough one there now. You can't be a good liberal and say no to that, right? Right? I I mean liberal in the broad sense, right? No, right? No, he's taught—Jews are stiff-necked because they're humans— when he says, don't go into this land and think you're good, you're not good. You're, you're stubborn. You're ridiculously stubborn and therefore forgetful. Guess what's true about—it's the same race, people. <laughs> right? So we have to constantly, in a disciplined way, remember. And then lastly, we have to be careful in our obedience. You know, you and I say, if I say, listen, do you care about, at all about obeying Jesus? You're probably like, yep. But how many of us have outposts of Jesus' statements and commands to us that we know darn well we don't pay any attention to? Right? Thank you. Well, apparently Brandon Brooks and I will talk after the service, right? <laughs> we, we almost all have them. I'll pick on young, uh, yo- younger people for just a second, because I like to, because they can take it. Um, what do you think the premarital sex rate is for Christians from, you know, 17 to 30? It's about, it's about 5% off of the rest of the world. Yeah, it's about 95% for everybody, and it's about 88 or something like that for Christians who believe in the Bible, go to church— it's pretty bad. Why? B- because those are outposts. That's not in the middle, right? It's just they're out there. There's all kind, of, and that's, that's them. There's all, everybody has their thing, right? There's a lot of parents that are cutting all kinds of obedience corners because they just don't feel like it, and old people get all curmudgeoning on certain things that just is really unbiblical too. It's not—we can, can pick on everybody, but, but it's, it's very widespread. And here's the thing you've got to realize. Almost all of us with our kids want to believe that we don't give stupid rules for no reason. We're horrified if our kids go, you know, this is our culture. You know, we, you, know you gave me that rule, there's really no reason for it. And what do we, what's always our response? Our response is, okay, the problem is, is that you're eight and you don't know the reason for it. And I don't know why you have to ask that arrogantly, but let, can I explain it to you? And you won't even understand the reason, but I'll just tell you. And you're just going to have to obey it until you get some sense and you can actually understand it. Right? I don't know if that's how you—you you know, I try to be more delicate, but that's the, that's the answer, right? Because I don't give my kids rules that, they, that really don't matter. I really try not to do that because I got enough to enforce as it is, right? What, what do you think God is like? Do you think God is more stingy, more mean, more controlling, more ugly than you are? I mean, Jesus flat said in Luke's gospel, you know, God's a good father and you're a bad father. And you do good things. Whatever good you do, God does all the more good for his children, Right? It's arrogance on our part. Every—so when God says, listen, you need to obey, he says in this—he says he doesn't say, listen, you should think about doing some of the things in the law. He doesn't say that. He says, you need to be careful to obey everything I commanded you. And think about this. That's exactly what Jesus says in the Great Commission, right? He's just about quoting Deuteronomy when he says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? What? And teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Why? Let me tell you. I'll tell you a quick story about this. Because it's the outpost you don't think you have to guard that will be your undoing. That's why. That thing that you don't obey, that you don't think is a big deal, is the place where you will not assign any psychological vigilance, and that's the place you're going to go under. That's why. Um, when, when I got to go to Israel some years ago with my church in Florida and um, one of the places we went was Caesarea Maritima um, it's right on the Mediterranean Sea it's a beautiful place that overlooks the ocean it's kind of on this little rocky bluff Herod lived there Pontius Pilate lived there they, did, they wouldn't lower themselves to live in the dusty Jew-filled Jerusalem and they liked it, it and he, Herod cut a stone pool out so he could, he could swim in fresh water within 50 feet of salt water I mean, it's just it's this beautiful gem of a city. had a huge wall around it. It was very well defended. had access to fresh water through a Roman aqueduct. And some years later, in the 4th century, when the Byzantines had control of it, the Byzantine Christians, they had control of it, and they kept it. And, when the, and the Arab armies were coming in to, to sort of conquer that part of Israel. And it was—for it, a while, the Byzantines were really— it was really easy for them to hold Mer- Caesarea Maritima because it had a port. So, you know, the Muslim armies could come in and they could lay siege for 50 years. It wouldn't matter. Caesarea Maritima could trade in and out of its port. Had water coming in. There was no problem. And it also had this great this great siege deal because there, mo- usually you would siege the main but the way Sesmaria Maritima was set up was that there was this—there was this place you would come in that was all stone, and then right where the gate was, was a 90-degree turn. And then you had to go under this port car and then there was the door. And so it was very hard to attack. You can't get a battery ram going. You only got—you're I mean, like, like, okay, do I hit there? What— it? You can—you don't can go back and forth so much. You can't get ho- a lot of horses through very easily. It was a really ingenious way to set things up. In fact, um, it was so hard that the Byzantine knights, when they would go by, it was so narrow that there was actually a cut in the rock where their feet would hit it when they would go by. That it, it had worn away the rock because it was narrow and it was turned, right? And they couldn't get through. You know how the—you know how the Arabs took it? The Byzantines didn't post sentry on the top of the aqueduct— and so they ditched their horses, they went a few miles away, they got on top of the aqueduct, they walked right into the city, and they took it uncontested. And the Byzantines had posted guard almost everywhere, but not there. And now, hundreds of years later, we go, Ugh, what a bunch of idiots. Really, you couldn't figure that one out? Well, the a- it took the Arabs months to figure that one out. Nobody was thinking that until they did it. And because they didn't feel like they had to be vigilant at that sort of obscure place, why would we put guards there? That was their downfall. It was a failure of vigilance. And that's what happens to us when we're not careful to obey. When we go, oh, why does God say all this? Well, those are outposts that matter because when you're not vigilant about them, that's where you'll go down. It doesn't take much of a foothold to get more of a foothold. And what God wants, the reason he gives us the rules and the commands he does, is because he wants a sound perimeter— Because we need one. Because we're prone to be invaded. We love sin. And so the perimeter that we put around ourselves by trusting God and the things we need to do is incredibly important. And one of the first things that we need to recognize, though, to to even like God— listen, you cannot follow Jesus your whole life and enjoy him forever if you don't like God. And if you think that he tells you you're a failure, or you're going to be a failure, out of anything but compassion and love and desire to see you succeed, so that he says, this is what's going to happen to you. Now don't give up. You can do it. Have courage. So that you can have strength and courage and vigilance. You don't understand him, but you could. You could believe. You could believe that that's his real heart. You could believe that's what he really wants for you. You could believe that's, that's why he does it. You could believe that it is because of his desire to prime you for redemption and spiritual success so that you can have all the blessings of the book of the law rather than all its curses. But it starts with trusting the one who will call you a loser out of love. Can you enjoy and revel in that fact Let's You know we do la- We don't do last songs As like closing We do it as worship So if If you can be persuaded From Deuteronomy And from the scriptures That this is the God we worship Use the last song That we're gonna do right now To, to, to enjoy And to speak it back to God in, Out of prayer And then I hope you walk away I hope you talk about it with people And I hope We can apply it to our lives Let's pray. Father, um, would you please help us to not be people of our time, confused by the oversensitivity of our present culture, and be able to hear you, to hear your loving purpose as a parent and as a father, because you want us to live. You want us to live courageously, and you want us to live with the vigilance necessary for our survival and so we can thrive. We want to believe what you say, that it is your desire to prosper us in the fullest sense of the word. And even though we'll talk about this next week, it's important for all of us who actually feel like failures right now to realize that you say that at the moment where our hearts would turn back to you, when we would see our failures, we see that you predicted them and we would understand something about ourselves, that that would turn our hearts back to you, that you say in that moment, no matter how far we are scattered to the ends of the earth, you will bring us back to you And it will be better than before. And we pray that you would do that with those of us who just feel like we're in the middle of nowhere. Give us the freedom of humility and releasing of a sense of personal greatness or self-righteousness and help us to enjoy what you're making us to be. And help us to be a courageous and vigilant generation out of our love for you with all our hearts and all our souls. Amen.